You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to Job chapter 3. We're continuing our series in the book of Job called When the Righteous Suffer. Today we reach the part of Job that has been described as the darkest chapter in this book. Job as a man has thus far been presented as the ideal sufferer, a man who continues to trust in the Lord despite losing everything. And that in itself is one of the most important lessons that the book of Job teaches us, that God is still worthy of worship and trust, even if we lose everything else but him. Now we might ask, that we have, now that we have learned this lesson, we might ask, well, what else is there to learn about Job and from Job? Don't we already have the main lesson here, that if we suffer, we should suffer like Job? When, when our loved ones die, or when our health fails, or when our lives come crumbling down around us, we know that we should also be able to say that the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We, 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 we know the model of the ideal sufferer, so what else is there to learn? Well, as we know, uh, it is just not that simple. If you have suffered, you know that suffering is not simple, nor is the process of enduring through suffering. Suffering is, is messy. Suffering is unpredictable. Suffering can, can move from uh, being faced with composure and dignity on one day and then come and knock you off your feet the next. And that was the case for Job. What we are going to hear him say in chapter 3 is very different from what he said in chapters 1 and 2 because his suffering has taken its toll on him. This man who was once so composed and dignified, so reserved in his words, so controlled in his response, he has now completely come undone. His grief is beyond description. He is a man who is full of anguish. His, his mind is just filled with unanswered questions. And, and somewhat shockingly, if you, if you heard the scripture reading earlier, somewhat shockingly, he, he no longer even believes that his life is worth living. If you've ever wondered what's going on inside the mind of someone who is in deep suffering, well, Job tells us. Job puts to word the innermost thoughts and feelings of those who are going through living hell. He helps us to understand what those who have lost what they love are feeling and what it is like to have forgotten what it is like to be happy. Now, I need to give you some advance notice that this sermon is not going to be an uplifting sermon. You're not going to leave this Zoom service feeling better about yourself or about your circumstances. 
Uh, this, is, this is not a sermon that is going to necessarily bring you comfort and positive thoughts about what's going on in your life. And that's not always going to be the purpose of Scripture. There are times when God wants to communicate his, his comfort and reminders uh, that everything is going to be okay. But there are other times when he just says, this is the reality of the broken, fallen world that we live in. And he wants us to carry those thoughts into our week. This will not be an uplifting sermon, but it will be an important sermon. Because this sermon and this chapter in scripture shows us that even the godly can grieve. Even those who are blameless and upright, those who fear the Lord and turn away from evil, even those who know the hope of the resurrection, who have put their trust in Christ, even those kinds of people can experience and express such immense anguish and pain that they wish that they had never been born. That's what this chapter is going to show us. But more importantly than that, this chapter will also tell us that God knows what that feels like. I mean, Job is not just writing for himself here. He is writing as a man who is inspired by the Holy Spirit. The, the, the Spirit of God was working in the soul of Job to give him these words, not just to express his anguish to us, but to tell us that God knows God knows our pain. God even has experienced our pain in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And so we can read these words, finding absolute assurance that God not only knows and understands our pain, but he has experienced it himself. He has entered into it when he suffered on our behalf for our sins. The title of this sermon is The Grief of the Godly. The Grief of the Godly, and we will divide this chapter into three points. First, cursing his day. Second, questioning his life. And third, longing for death. First, cursing his day. Job chapter three begins in verse one with this. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Now, if you've been following along in this series on Job, uh, you will believe with me that this is not what we have come to expect from Job. After his exemplary response in chapters one and two, we have come to expect praise coming out of his mouth, worship coming out of his mouth, trust coming out of his mouth. Job has showed us that he is a man with an exceptionally wise perspective on suffering. He understands and recognizes that God was and is the author of his blessings and joys as well as his pain and his suffering. And he was ready to submit to the will of God whatever God chooses to bring into his life. But in chapter three, Job doesn't feel that way, not, not in this moment. At this moment, what comes out of Job's mouth is a curse. He doesn't curse God as Satan predicted he would or as his wife urged him to do to curse God and die, but he gets awfully close. 
He curses the day of his birth. Literally, his day. He curses his day. The same Hebrew word in chapter one when we were told that his seven sons would hold a feast on his day and invite all their siblings, their seven brother, six other brothers and three sisters, they would all come together on his day to celebrate his birthday. But here in chapter three, what was once a day to celebrate had become a day to curse. This curse begins in verse three. Let the day perish on which I was born in the night that said, a man is conceived. Job is saying, if, if days could be alive, if my birthday were a living thing, I wish that it would die. I wish that both the day of my birth and the night of my conception would cease to exist. And Job repeatedly uses this language of darkness in verses four to six. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. This darkness that Job wishes would come and surround and engulf and encompass his day is contrasted with the light in verse four. Let let not light shine upon it. And whenever the Bible talks about light, uh, we should be reminded, especially in this context, of the light that shone at the beginning of creation. In fact, the first recorded words of God in Genesis 1 verse 3 were, let there be light. And then God separates the light from the darkness as he begins to put his creation in order. So when Job curses his day by wishing darkness to come upon him, what he is really doing is he is wishing to undo what God has done. He is wishing for this this act of God's creation to come unraveled, to disappear, and to fade into non-existence. Now, like many of you, our family has a wall calendar hanging on our Uh, one of the walls in our living room. And we use it to keep track of important days. None, no day more important in our family than the many birthdays that we have to celebrate. Eight different birthdays. And on the birthdays in the wall calendar, when we reach that day on that calendar, we we decorate it with candles and birthday cakes and, and, and all that. We try to make that day stand out on the calendar as one that is special, one that we are looking forward to celebrating. Well, if you looked at Job's wall calendar and you flipped to the day of his birth, you would see it blacked out. You would see it burned out of the calendar because Job doesn't want to celebrate it. He doesn't even want his day to be remembered or for it to be seen to exist. He wants his day to disappear from history so that when people look back at history, When people look back at the archives of time, there would be a day missing. His day would be missing. Job continues in verse seven. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. The the night of his birth 
was punctuated by a joyful cry from his parents when they welcomed him into the world. But here he's saying, let no joyful cry enter it. Let let that night be barren, not fruitful, but empty. Now, he doesn't wish that his mother had been barren because his, his beef is not with her. He only wishes that the night had been barren because his anguish is directed not to his mother, but to his very existence. In verse 8, he says, let those who curse it, who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Here, what Job is doing is he's calling on the magicians of the world, the the sorcerers who who cursed people. He's, He's summoning them, those who claim to have power over this mysterious, majestic creature in the book of Job called Leviathan. Leviathan, of course, symbolizing disorder and chaos. And he's, he's calling them to say, direct your curses to my day. I don't want to curse it by myself. I, I need you to join me in cursing it so that it won't exist. Then in verse 9, we see Job imagine what would otherwise be a beautiful poetic illustration of a sunrise. He he pictures this faint glimmer of stars in the sky even as the sun begins to show its light. He describes this hope for light, this eager anticipation and confidence that the darkness will be dispelled by the sun's rays. And as the sky begins to change, it's like the sun slowly showing its eyelids, which are still closed after a night's sleep but are ready to open up and to shine the radiance of their brightness. Well, Job takes this image of a beautiful sunrise and he completely erases it. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning. Well, why does he want this? Why does he desire to curse his day and to see it erased from history? Well, verse 10 because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Job wants his day to die because it was his day that brought him his trouble. His day is the reason for all of his troubles. If his day had not existed, then his troubles would not have existed. And his troubles were of such a gravity and wait that all he could think of was erasing his life so that he could erase his pain. My friends, this is not the same man that we saw in chapter one and chapter two. This is not the same man who believed that it was better to be blessed for a time than to never have been blessed at all. This is not the same man who said, The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job here in chapter three has become a man who believes that it would have been better for him to not exist at all than to have experienced the pain of having all his blessings taken away. 
Job wants to curse his day. But that is, of course, impossible. He has no more power to curse his day than he has power to restore his blessings. And so he turns from cursing to questioning, leading to our second point. The question of why. Why? Why why did this happen? Why, God, did you allow this to come into my life? That is one of the most prominent questions in Scripture. Why have you forsaken me? Why do you delay? Why do my enemies triumph over me? Why is it taking so long for you to answer my prayers? But here, if you've noticed the voice with which Job writes chapter three, you'll notice that Job is not talking to God. This is not a prayer. Job isn't asking God a question, nor is he asking his friends. He isn't even asking himself because he's not really interested in the answers. What he's doing is he is venting. He is giving expression to his anguish. And the only way he can give expression to his anguish is to ask the question, why? Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? Now we know that there is nothing more painful than the unexpected suffering of giving birth to a stillborn baby. I mean, when you're pregnant, your life is full of expectation and hope. And you have dreams for this child. You have, you have hopes and, and you're, you're so excited to be a mother or a father and, and life is, is full of of joy, coming joy, present joy, future joy. But then the baby is found with no heartbeat. It is one of the most horrible things that could ever happen to someone. But here Job says, I I wish that that had been me. But if it hadn't been me, if I had not been Stillborn, I I wish other horrors upon myself. I wish that my parents had abandoned me rather than receiving me on their knees, receiving me to sit on their laps. But if if that if not that, then I wish that that my mother who nursed me at her breast, I wish that she had refused and that she had left me to die and to starve to death. I I wish that any of that had happened over and above what has happened to me. Job tells us why he wishes this upon himself again in verse 13. For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest. I would have been at rest. Job wants death because he wants rest. He, he wants to be at peace. He, he wants to feel again what it is like to lay down in quietness and to sleep without having nightmares because he doesn't have any of that right now. He doesn't have rest. He doesn't have peace. He doesn't have quiet. The boils on his body continue to cause him constant pain. 
His children, all 10 of his beautiful children are dead. His wife wants him to curse God and die. And even though his three friends are sitting with him, Job is still a man who is suffering alone because they have nothing of comfort to say. Job wants rest. And if you have suffered, you know exactly what he's talking about. When you are suffering, you, you don't want wealth. You don't want recognition. You don't want success. You don't even want pleasure. All you want is a day without pain. All you want is a day when it doesn't hurt anymore. You want to be able to lie down and just dream without care or worry or grief. Job wants rest so badly that he would be willing to take the life of a stillborn baby than the life that he has lived and lost. He he would have gladly exchanged all the joys of marriage, all the blessings of fatherhood, all the prosperity of, of once being the greatest of all the people of the East. He would have given it all up for the rest that comes from death. In verses 14 to 15, Job considers those who already have this rest. He wants to rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold, who who filled their houses with silver. Job wants to join the great men of the earth as the dead men of the earth. Those who once rebuilt ruins and filled their houses with gold and silver on the face of the earth now lie within the earth. And that is exactly what Job wants. He's not afraid of that. He longs for that because that is where he believes he will finally find rest. But there's another reason why he's thinking about kings and princes in this moment. In verses 16 to 19, he says, There the wicked cease from troubling. There the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. What Job is doing here is he is talking about death as the great equalizer. Death is the one force in life that levels the playing field between the small and the great, between the taskmaster and the servant, between the master and the slave. And Job, of course, is speaking about this because he is a man who has just suffered at the hands of wicked men, men who are more powerful than him. It was the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans who deprived him of all his wealth and his servants. They were the reason why this man who had once been the greatest of all the people of the East had now become the poorest and the lowest. And so he longs for death to bring absolute, uninterrupted justice. He he longs for death to impose equality so that both the small and the great lie equal in the grave. Job wants justice. But notice that he does not look to the God of justice to provide. He he looks to death, to the the faceless, nameless, non-entity of death to give him 
justice. In other words, in, in these moments of greatest grief, he cannot bear to look to God. He, he's not praying to God. He's not waiting upon God. He's not looking to God for justice. He doesn't trust God at this moment to bring him the justice he wants. Because he doesn't know if he can trust God to give him what he wants. And I wonder, is that perhaps you today? Perhaps you are experiencing some crushing weight of sorrow and grief and and you're looking for solutions. You're, You're looking for some relief from your burdens, but you're looking anywhere but God. Yeah, you're fine with counseling. You're fine with medication. Or you're perhaps trusting your own inner sense of optimism that that sooner or later life's going to turn around and get better for you. Perhaps you're even looking to the final release of death. The only place that you're not looking is God. You may be speaking about God, but you're not speaking to God. You're, You're looking everywhere for a solution, but the one who actually has the power to lift you out of the ash heap and to restore you. Well, if that's you, then you have found in Job a kindred spirit. And you have found in scripture the the recognition that God knows what you feel. After all, this isn't the first time that God has seen one of his servants struggle with whether they could trust him wrestling with whether they should spend their time on their knees in prayer before him. God saw Job, Job, his finest man. The man he described as being beyond anyone else in the earth. He saw him turn to death rather than to God. And God did not destroy him. God did not even rebuke him. He just waited At this stage in Job's Job's grief, God waited and he listened. And he waited in the kindness and steadfast love of his fatherly heart for this broken, despairing man to quiet himself once again before the Lord and to trust him. But Job is not there yet. He's not there yet. Before it gets better, it gets worse which leads to our final point, longing for death. In a series of questions in verses 20 to 22, Job wonders aloud about the injustice of his situation. He asks, why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul who long for death but it comes not and dig for it more than for hidden treasures who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Job is asking, why can't I just die? That's what I want. I I long for it like a man longs to find hidden treasure. My treasure is death. A terminal diagnosis of cancer would not bring me anguish. It would bring me exceeding joy. But it's just not coming. Death remains elusive And for Job, that feels unjust. Why why should he continue in his existence when he doesn't want to live anymore? 
And this is where Job finally acknowledges the presence and agency of God in all of this. In verse 23, he says, why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Job has not been talking to God, but he finally gets to a place where he can talk about God. And here he acknowledges that it is God who has hedged him in. Even though it feels like Job's way is hidden from God, he knows that God is still present with him, preserving his life and keeping him from death with this hedge around him. Now, Job isn't wrong about that. You remember what Satan said in chapter one when Satan presented himself before the Lord in the heavenly council. What does he say? He says, have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? God's hedge is a wonderful thing. God's hedge is what kept Job sustained and his children living. God's hedge was a wonderful source of comfort, but now God's hedge seems like a curse. God's decision to keep the hedge minimally present, to uphold Job's life, To restrict Satan from taking Job's life is keeping Job from the very thing that he longs for, his death. In his commentary on Job, David Kleins writes, the hedge has become a prison wall rather than a wall of defense. Job has become a man who sees even the blessings of God as curses. And he has lost all perspective. He longs for that last wall of defense to be lifted so that Satan can finally take his life and he can experience finally the rest that he so longs for. Job is clearly a broken man. But we need to understand the difference between someone like Job and someone who is suicidal. Because you might read these, these verses and say, hey, Job is suicidal. That, that's what this is about. And if I feel that, If I start thinking about taking my life, I have in Job precedent for feeling the way that I do. And God is is putting a stamp of approval on that. No, that, that is not what this chapter is all about at all. Job is saying, I want to die. But the suicidal person says, I'm going to make myself die. You see the difference? There is a difference between wanting your life to end and making plans or taking steps to actually end it. This poem is not justifying suicidal thoughts or ideas or actions. Nowhere in this poem does Job muse about what he's going to do to himself. He doesn't do that. Because he recognizes, even as he struggles with trusting his God, the God whom he worshiped, he recognizes that God alone has that right. It is God's right to decide how long he lives and when he dies. And so even as Job complains about this hedge, he submits to the fact that it exists. And he doesn't do anything more than that. Job ends with a final description of why he longs for death in verses 24 to 26. For my sighing comes instead of my bread And my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me. And what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease. 
nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. What a way to end this morose, hopeless poem. No ease, no quiet, no rest, only trouble. Trouble brought about by his birth and trouble brought about by his God. He is living through the very trouble that he most feared. The thing that I fear comes upon me. And that, and that, that was not the loss of his possessions. That was not the loss of his wealth. It was the loss of his children. Do you remember what he did in chapter one? When his children would come together on the day of the brother celebrating his birthday, there was Job in the background offering up sacrifices for them all. Saying, just in case, just in case they have sinned, just in case they have cursed God in their hearts, I am offering these sacrifices for them because I cannot bear the thought of God's judgment or discipline falling upon my beloved children. I fear that. And I'm going to do whatever I can to keep that from happening. But in the end, it made no difference. The thing he feared had come upon him and what he dreaded befell him. And that is how Job's first speech ends. It doesn't end with prayer. It doesn't end with a reminder of God's promises. It doesn't end with a hopeful note. It ends with these two dreadful words. Trouble comes. That is all Job foresees for his future. Trouble comes. Trouble has come and trouble will come. And I will not receive rest from all this trouble until the day that I die. So, what do we do with a chapter like this? You have probably never read a chapter in the Bible like this. You have probably never read anything like this unless you are an avid reader of Edgar Allan Poe. You have never read such depressing thoughts expressed by a broken man. What, what do we do with that? Well, let me briefly suggest three things. First, godly people may grieve like Job. Godly people may grieve like Job. I wonder if you've ever had the experience of showing up at church feeling broken and hopeless. Perhaps even that Sunday morning, you woke up crying you woke up despairing of life. You, you woke up wishing that you didn't even exist. But somehow, by the grace of God, by the strength of your will, you get up, you get ready for church and you arrive and you look around and you see all these smiling faces. You hear all these people laughing. You, you see all these people wearing their Sunday best, looking like life is together for them and you wonder, am I the only one? Am I the only one here who is suffering? Am I the only one who doesn't feel like raising my hands in worship or talking about God's goodness or celebrating God's faithfulness? 
Well, Job chapter three tells us that you are not the only one because even the godly grieve. Even the godly grieve. And if anyone says that the godly do not grieve like Job has grieved in this chapter, they are either cold-hearted or they have never suffered very much. There are many more people with a Job-like experience, not just in history, but in our community than you know of. And I know that because I'm a pastor. I talk to more people who are crying every month than most of you would talk to in your entire lifetime. And so if you are suffering, you are not alone. If you thought that it would have been better that you had never been born, you are not alone. Grief and sorrow, hopelessness and despair aren't signs that you are less mature or that you lack faith. They are signs that you are a human being living through the the harsh realities of this broken, fallen world. Godly people may grieve like Job. And the sooner we recognize that as a church, the sooner we can stop pretending like everything is okay. We can stop trying to put forward our best when we are together. And we can, we can start grieving together, not in isolation, but in community. That is one of the marks of the church. We carry each other's burdens. We bear each other's pain. And we weep with those who weep. Second lesson, godly people don't have to grieve like Job. One of the reasons why Job's grief is so deep is because he believed that God had abandoned him. He thought that his way was hidden from the Lord. He thought that God had turned his gaze away from him and no longer saw what he was going through. He had abandoned him. And that to Job was a terrifying thought. He thought that the God who had blessed him and prospered him, the God who was with him and for him had had now turned for some unexplained reason to being against him. And he didn't understand why. But we know, we know as the readers of Job that God had not abandoned him. God was not against him. God was still with him and God was still for him because we we heard, we had insight into what was going on in the heavenly places. When God said to Satan, have you not considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, blameless and upright, a man who fears the Lord and turns away from evil. God was still with him. God was still for him. God still delighted in him. And Job could have found immeasurable comfort from that assurance. One commentator wrote, the hardest part of his suffering need not be the feeling that he is deserted by God. Listen, if you're you're a Christian, your faith in Christ will not spare you from suffering. You, You will suffer. If you're not suffering now, It's only a matter of time before you will suffer. But the hardest part of your suffering never needs to be the feeling that you have been deserted by God. 
Yes, there are things that we do to grieve the spirit and to break our fellowship with God when we sin and we don't repent. God lays his hand of discipline upon us to convict us and bring us back to the joy of our salvation. But even then, God has not abandoned us. His his discipline is inflicted with his fatherly hand of love still upon us. God is present in our joys and our pains so that we never have to suffer alone. Lastly, godly people remember the one who did not grieve like Job. We may be tempted to say that no one in the Bible suffered quite like Job, but that wouldn't be true. As great as his suffering was, Job's suffering only provides a faint outline for the suffering of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the greater Job, not just in what he suffered, but in how he suffered. Jesus literally suffered hell on earth. He didn't just feel like God had abandoned him. Jesus knew that God had abandoned him, not because he sinned, not because he did anything wrong, but because he took our sins upon himself and suffered the penalty of God's perfect justice in our place. But in his moment of deepest sorrow, Jesus didn't just vent. Jesus didn't just speak into the air and ask, why? Why is this happening to me? No, he, he, he directed his words to the Father in prayer. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. My, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and as Jesus prepared to breathe his last, he prayed one last prayer. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit Jesus is the greater Job, not just in what he suffered, but in how he suffered. And Jesus is worthy of our trust. Jesus is worthy of our imitation. And Jesus is worthy of our worship. Wherever you are in life, whatever you are experiencing right now, whatever burdens you may be carrying, you can trust in Jesus. Because Jesus knows your pain. He suffered your pain for your sins. And so come to Jesus and you will be forgiven, you will be restored, and you will be given fresh hope, not the depressing expectation of future trouble, but the life-giving hope of future glory, for Christ has paid it all and he will bring us to be with God in his presence forever. Let's pray. Father, this morning we are sobered by the darkness of human experience, suffering the loss of what we love, feeling deep in our souls the frustrations of unanswered prayers, the grief of seeing the things that we fear happen to us. And we just pray, Father, that when that day comes, if that day comes in our lives, that you would give us grace to to turn to you, to express our anguish, 
to you, to look to you for justice, to look to you for comfort. And may we not fall into the trap of Job who believed that you had abandoned him, that you were against him, but to remember that you are who you are in chapters one and two, the God who delights in his people and who allows even these evils to happen to us for our good and for your glory. I pray that you would help us to grieve with hope and not as those who have no hope. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.